Hey y'all, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. We are so glad you're joining us today. This is season one, The Texas Killing Fields, episode four. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Hey guys, we are so excited about how many of you have been finding us out there. Thank you for connecting with us and giving us your questions and showing us your support. Um, you can always follow us on our Facebook page at Bodies in the Bayous or email us at Bodies in Bayous at Hotmail.com. Yeah, I think, Morgan, we need to be kind of clear about that Hotmail <laughs> address because there's a little trouble with that. So our Hotmail address is Bodies in Bayous. So you have to take out the the. Unfortunately, we could not get one available that had the the in it. So if you just think bodies, I-N, bayous, you'll find us. Yeah, and we can't wait to hear from you guys. And again, we're so excited. When we first started, we just did not, could not imagine how many people have, have found us and have been excited about listening to us. So we are we're over the moon three episodes in and this is our fourth can't be more excited absolutely and i know we've been getting asked this um coming up on our fourth episode that we're going to release is um everybody keeps asking us why we're doing this yeah um so gretchen why are you doing this i think for us we you know, I started out and we were kind of talking about, we love podcasts. And so we were talking about podcasts and we'd go into work every day and we'd be like, oh my gosh, did you hear this episode? Or did you see they solved that case? And um, so jokingly one day we were like, we should start a podcast. And Jokingly we or jokingly <laughs> you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think you were very serious about it, Morgan. I was. <laughs> I thought we were kidding. <laughs> I love that. Um, so I was like, yeah, let's do a true crime podcast. And But for me, in getting involved in this, you know, I, I really have always felt like if we can give these victims out there some sort of voice, that would be the ultimate goal. But I mean, what if we can get an answer for some family? Right. You know, it's just if if just that little bit of information out there would give us an answer for somebody's family would put some piece together or get a law enforcement officer to go and look at what evidence is left there, what can be tested, what, what didn't they think about open up a case file and look at those names again, look at the descriptions of the vehicle, see if there's anything out there that, could come out yeah or been overlooked right mm -hmm. so morgan why did you want to do this oh my um so for one you approached me with it and i'm like yeah let's do it you know i mean how exciting is that adventure um but i think my passion is a little different because i do have two daughters and i can't imagine something like that happening to them and not knowing the answers and my drive really comes, I think, from that in the hopes to give answers to their families, their, especially their mothers, their fathers, brothers. I, I don't even I don't know, because sometimes it's it makes me speechless because I can't express the way I feel. Right. With it, you know, um, I just I can't imagine. And I think one of my biggest fears is not knowing what happened to my kids like if something was to happen to them and not knowing what that is i don't know if i could live with it mm -hmm. well and i think you know this is the era of the ability to have all of that at your fingertips you can talk to so many different people in these type of um podcasts and arenas and and um i mean you've got youtube out there with the videos you've got podcasts out there you have just so many different media sources that can open up mass amounts of information that have not been readily available before to anybody you know um law enforcement or families out there but even the general public who this was going on during their time and it might at some point in time get somebody to be like wait a second nobody asked me i think that's what you said mm -hmm. one time yeah well yeah just when you hear other investigators saying you know 
you wouldn't be surprised how many doors we knock on because we have their names from a report and you knock on their door and they tell you something significant and you're like, why they're saying, why did you not report that? And they're like, nobody harassed me, mm-hmm. you know? And I guess, I mean, I, sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what that means, but you know, we may talk about it, but unless law enforcement comes and asks me a direct question, I may not go report it. You know what I'm saying? So it's easy to get lost like that, I think. You know, right. what other people may have seen when you're witness number 50 out of the 10 they considered. Well, and it's interesting because I listen to a podcast called In Your Backyard, and I know that that podcast, some of the reason that it is, you know, looking at law enforcement being able to do so much more now is because the podcaster on that podcast actually asked a question of a person who had never been interviewed before. And it was just somebody walking by. Well, how it, how does law enforcement get all of those names of the people who might have randomly been walking by? And you may not know, you know, something, but then you might listen to something or a friend might tell you something. And then all of a sudden that might, you know, come forward. And for us, we decided to do this because even though I told you no serial killers. No, here we are. Um, dabbling. Where are we dabbling though? Yeah. <laughs> um, for us, this is in our backyard, you know? Right. And when we talked about this to people at work or friends of ours or something like that, there were so many people who came up and said, Oh yeah, I was living here then. Or yeah, I know what, what that was like. Or my dad, you know, um, was there. Was I there. grew up here and we're like, we didn't. Yeah. We right. Didn't. Like our passion is not from that. Like imagine if we grew up here. Oh yeah. I mean, oh my God. So we've been little teenagers, teeny boppers, <laughs> solving crimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like seriously, like because it's scary, and it if we are older than the ones who were living here at the time this was happening. You know, right. so I mean, that's what also makes it interesting is that we're getting the young twenty-year-olds coming to us, like, oh, I grew up my whole life knowing this. Like, yeah. Whoa. I mean, that's mind-boggling sometimes so i'm excited to see where we go today so i think we're going to take a look at um Rhonda johnson and sharon shaw's disappearance in august of 1971 when we come back thanks for listening Rhonda johnson and sharon shaw both disappeared on august 4th 1971 gretchen what can you tell us about their stories So Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw were best friends from Webster, Texas. Webster is in Galveston County. I I don't know if it's Galveston County or Harris. It might be. Parts of it might be Galveston Mm -hmm. County. Parts of it might be Harris. But but near that same area that we've been talking about earlier, Galveston, Leak City, Webster, that same kind of general area along the I-45 corridor. So they uh, decided that they were going for the day to Galveston Island to do some um, surfing with their friends, hang out on the beach, go to the ski school down there. When I read ski school, I couldn't quite figure out what that is. And so it took me a little while. (laughs) Skiing for me is like snow. snow. (laughs) What do you mean skiing? <laughs> so, but I guess that it was, is hard to water ski, by the way. Like it's all upper body. Training. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess there was a water skiing school there where people would pay like a dollar to go out and go water skiing for the day and, you know, be kind of towed along behind the boat. So that was something they were going to possibly do with their friends. And they were going to have a friend pick them up there on 61st Avenue and Seawall Boulevard, which for those of you who don't know, that would essentially be right right the area where the beach is. Absolutely. I know when I first moved here, I kept saying, oh, my God, I'm only 30 minutes from the beach. We go down there, and literally, it's exactly where you just described, you know. Right. And, I mean, that was the beach. It was not the beach I expected to see, but it was the beach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you drive off of 45, you get off at 61st, go all the way down 61st until the seawall, and then that's where you are is right at the beach. So that's where they were um, 
actually waiting for their friend. And that's the last time that they're seen. Um, their friend shows up to pick them up and they're not there. And I think from all accounts that we got, the friend said, oh, they must have gotten a ride from someone else. You know, um, again, it's back at that era where if they would have, they wouldn't have been able to call. But I do find that a little odd that for me, if I told my friend, come pick me up at somewhere and I was going to get a ride from somebody else, I probably wouldn't take the ride from somebody else. I wouldn't make my friend right. drive all the way from Webster to pick me up and then not be there you know, waiting for them, but sure. that would be my first kind of red flag that something had gone on with them. Uh, their parents reported them missing. Uh, from what we can tell, they were definitely taken seriously as a missing person's case. There was a search that, you know, went on at least with the newspapers kind of putting out there, we're looking for information on these two girls who have gone missing. Any information would be helpful. Uh, it wasn't until January 3rd of 1972 that their remains were found at Taylor Lake while a man and his son were fishing. They found a skull was floating in the lake. They called law enforcement. Law enforcement went out there, recovered the skull. And then over the next couple of days, there was a much larger search effort that went out to see if they could find any other remains and it's very confusing at this point because i think when law enforcement first went out they really thought that maybe the skull was going to belong to earlier remains that they had found they had found remains in september 1st of 1972 which was just a torso and so when they're going out to look at the skull they're believing that what they're actually looking for what they're actually going to find is the rest of this um body of this torso that they had found in September. When they had found the t torso in September, they had actually identified that as male and thought that that was Philip Manning, a boy of 13 years old who had gone missing from Pasadena. Okay. Okay. So I have a few like input here. Um, Taylor Lake is Nassau Bay, yes. which is right in the middle of Clear Lake Webster. Mm -hmm. Right. That's where the girls were found. Yes. Okay. That's right down the street from where they lived. Right. So, so either they made it back home or they brought them back home, whoever took them. And when you're talking about the other torso, <laughs> it's kind of unrelated, but brings up significant like activity I guess in the right. area you know so it does make you wonder when you so what happens is I think we should cover that just a little bit what happens is they go out there they start searching um that area they find um the rest of the remains of both Debbie Ackerman I mean sorry Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw so they as they're searching, they find more remains. They start to put together the fact that they have now enough that of two sets of remains. Also, while they're searching, they find the clothing kind of shoved in a ditch area that goes out into Taylor Bayou. Mm -hmm. um, and so... And that makes sense. I mean, it's totally rocky around that area. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, the whole like side of, I don't know, they got seaside or uh -huh. whatever. I mean, it's all rocky right there. So that makes sense that it'd be shoved, shoved in, in there. Rocks, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, so relatively early on they're they're kind of coming up with the fact that they think that they have found or that they possibly have found the remains of these two girls. So it does take a couple of, uh, like a week or two to make some identifications. Um, through dental records yeah. of, of both of them. They also do find that um, the girls had been tied with a black twine. Um, and then obviously they find more torsos, I guess, um, or enough of their bodies that they do not think that that torso that they found in September is part of this. So their belief is that they have Rhonda Johnson, Sharon Shaw, and also Philip Manning, age 13. Um, 
And so Philip Manny, they they find his torso. What kind of testing was done on that? Because from our records, we know he's alive. Right. So, so I mean, it is discovered that in 2008, um, the. Uh, Philip Manning is actually found to be alive. He had run away from his home in 1971, hooked up with a truck driver. He went along with him for a while, thinking that maybe he would start becoming like an apprentice or something like that. And then um, the truck driver was abusive. And so Philip left the truck driver and then signed up and joined the army. When he was 14 years old, he kind of lied about his age. It was later that the army kind of, found out that he was younger, and so they discharged him. It was a year later, right? Yeah, it was about yeah, a year later. That's what I thought. And then uh, Philip just kind of went on with his life, you know? I think he lived in the Louisiana area for a while. I don't know if he ever made it back toward the Houston area, but I do know that for a while he lived in Louisiana, and then he just went on. I do know this is a total side note here, but for him to be as young as he is, hook up with a truck driver and find out this guy's abusive and escape him, he's probably lucky. I mean, I'm just sorry. Like, I know that's a total side note, but I had to go there. Well, and I think when you look at the circumstances here, especially what time, I mean, yeah, what actually, you know, I mean, what for a long time people believed happened to him, which was that he ended up in uh, Taylor Bayou there. I mean, you know, he's, he's I wonder if he ever lucky. knew. Do you think he ever knew? Like, he's like, oh, that's good. Everything's like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's probably not even, like, well, he may not even known until I, he was approached. I certainly would love to have a conversation right. with Philip Manning and see what had happened there. But I think we're kind of losing sight of um, Rhonda and uh, Sharon a little bit. So so Rhonda and Sharon are, are found I know in 2008, there was some talk about whether or not this torso that was found may have belonged to one of the girls, but, you know, the girls go missing in August, the torso's found in September, obviously it could possibly belong to one of them, but I think that they would have a better idea of like how long that torso had been out there, Um, but in trying to track down any information about that, I have not been able to find any information of what they have done. And as far as you asked about testing, Morgan, um, so back then I think your go-to testing would have been um, dental records. You wouldn't have had, you know, DNA testing, those types of things available to you to test. So there wouldn't have been a whole lot of answers. They would have been making a best guess, looking at who are all the missing people in this area who are relatively the same age as this torso. And then they would have been trying to make a determination based on the age they thought the torso was on whether or not that torso was male. So best guess, they thought the torso was male. I mean, I would think they know it's male, but... I just don't know. That's so hard for me. Yeah. So um, it was a, at that time we had in Webster, that was the area that took over the case because obviously their bodies are found up there in the Webster area and they are Webster residents. So the Webster chief of police, a guy named J.C. Norman, um, he appointed a officer, David Corbin, to take charge of the case. Corbin didn't make a whole lot of headway. He talked to some different people, tried to find out, you know, where had the girls been? You know, had anybody seen them? You know, he's kind of behind at this point in time because there's a there's an extensive period of time that's gone by here, right. too. So, you know, he's doing his best to try to figure out He's also talking to law enforcement who is who is dealing with some of these other cases at the time. So and because they go missing from Galveston, they do look at are they connected to the cases that we covered earlier? Colette Wilson, Brenda Jones, Gloria Gonzalez, and then Allison Craven. So there there is that question that they're having, you know, are these cases connected? 
And um, so he's talking to, you know, Houston PD, Galveston PD, all of those type of people to see if they can make any connection with this case. And they're not making a whole lot of headway. So Gretchen, um, tell me something. Rhonda Johnson, her grandfather was city council. Yeah, so her grandfather of was a city council member of Webster. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he's putting a ton of pressure on the chief of police to get this case solved and give his family some Absolutely. answers. Um, so an election happens. More people get elected. Johnson uh, is still um, there. And after that election happens, they decide to go ahead and replace Norman. And I, you know, although they don't necessarily say it, it's it's pretty clear that it's because he wasn't making headway on this case. Mm -hmm. So they replace Norman and they assign. But his second also resigns at that time, right? Yeah. So yeah. when they decide to replace Norman at that point in time, David Corbin just simply resigns, you know, and I think sometimes that's pretty normal um, for, to have an undersheriff resign, you know, underneath. The, why? I mean, like, why is that normal? Why wouldn't, he wants sheriff. Well, I don't know why they didn't put him as sheriff, but um, they, you know, I'm sure they're looking at, at who their best, who they thought was the best to bring in. And okay. at that point in time, they bring in a guy named Donald Ray Morris, who was appointed in May of 1972. Um, and he goes out and says, hey, my first priority is to solve this case. Love this. Mm -hmm. And he appoints um, Tommy Deal, who is his second in charge, to be focused on, let's solve this case. Let's get some answers for these families. And Deal focuses in on, very early on, a guy named Michael Lloyd Self. Now, Self was known to hang out with the former police chief, he was a volunteer fireman and he worked at a um, service station, like a gas station. Right. You know, and um, and so when um, Morris is appointed, Deal starts to focus in on self. So why do you think that is? Because he was kind of affiliated with maybe not necessarily law enforcement, volunteer firefighter has up friends, you know, maybe they all hang out in the same circle. I mean, why, why do you think that is? Well, I think he thought he was weird, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, you know, not only did he think he was weird, he said that um, self would be, he thought that self was overly, overly invested in mm -hmm. this case. Like self was questioning him on the case and asking him, Hey, you know, what do you know? And I think, you know, he felt like self was trying to like, make himself a part of the case, you know, and, and so that made him suspect. And I can see how that would, you know, we, there are crimes that have been solved by somebody who has kind of made themselves a part of the case and law enforcement has said, wait a second, we need to take a look at this person. Why are they so vested mm -hmm. in what's happening with this case? And so they start taking a look at, he starts taking a look at self. Um, and, and, and how does he take a look at him? You know, well, like how, like through what does he start taking a look? Well, at? he does accuse self of, um, he says that one day, you know, he saw that self was standing underneath a set of stairs and he felt like self was looking up the, up underneath girls skirts while they were walking <laughs> up the, up the stairs. And then I'm sorry, if you walk up some stairs, I might look under your skirt. I mean, come on, it's normal. Like, what is she doing? Well, I think, not like, you know, I think you know, more in I mean, peeping Tom like, oh, no, that's ugly. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think it was more like, he felt like he was like lurking underneath there in order to get a look, um, get a look at underneath the skirts and, you know, self did have a criminal record. It is. You know, in 1970, Self had been arrested for being a peeping Tom. And instead of pressing charges against him, the former chief of police, J.C. Norman, said, if you go and get psychiatric treatment, we'll drop the charges. You know, which is not unusual. As we've started doing some of this research, you know, we have seen that where peeping Toms and other type of you know, individuals who expose themselves, 
would get psychiatric treatment, you know, time and time and time again. Right. So I think, I mean, seriously, (laughs) I don't think they do this 16 times. I don't think they looked at it back then as a behavior that would escalate. I mean, I say that and yet when you look at what Houston was looking for, Houston was looking at people who had been charged with those types of cases. So they obviously knew that there was some connection and when this Tommy Deal starts to look at this, he thinks, all right, you know, there must self is probably one of those type of people who have kind of escalated into type, some type of behavior. But he doesn't necessarily just start bringing him in and start questioning him. He actually arrests him on several other <laughs> cases first. He um, he brings him in. These and- are going to be really great reasons to you, by the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. He brings him in and he first starts questioning him because, as we talked about, Michael Self was a volunteer fire department. So he first starts questioning him on whether or not Self was stealing gas. And, and so um, he uh, he starts questioning about that. And then um, he brings him in again and he starts questioning him about smoking pot. And the day that he brings him in, questions him about smoking pot, he actually has him sign a piece of paper that says, will you talk to me and will you ra- waive your rights to a lawyer? Right. And self did waive his rights to a lawyer at that time. At that time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to take a tiny little break here, and we will be right back. A week after Deal brought him in to talk to him about the marijuana, Deal asked him to come back in for more questions. Self came in voluntarily and was taken to the interrogation room, which this time Chief Morris came in to talk to him. He began interrogating him about the murder of the two girls, Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw. Self had no idea what Morris was talking about. He kept saying to Morris, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he asked to have a lawyer brought in. At that point in time, Morris advised him that he had waived his rights a week before when being brought in on the marijuana charge, and he did not have the right to have a counselor or a lawyer brought in at this time. you got to be kidding me. Is that even legal? No. No. You can't, <laughs> can't waive your right and then be brought in a week later. And if you waive your right to a lawyer, at any point in time, you can now say you want a lawyer. So he's just basically bullshitting him. He's trying to scare him, huh? Yeah, he's trying to scare him. But it works. He questions him for several hours. And after several hours, then self-confesses and says he murdered the girls. He begins to um, write out a confession, which Morris told him he needed to write out. And several people seeing him that day said that he actually wrote out the confession three or four times. He didn't know what he was supposed to write. But finally... But we do see that time and time and time again. You know, with the confessions. I think with the... Maybe with a false confession, you know, where police are feeding them information to make sure that they're getting it right. Or I guess you can say that a person who is confessing wouldn't want to confess to something like this. So maybe he confesses to a little bit and then, you know, they come back in and say, you need to tell us more. And so he rewrites the confession. That's a psychological warfare that we hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so... At, at that point, I don't don't know that um, certainly as as these other officers are seeing this happening, you know, they're not going to anybody at that point and saying, hey, this is wrong. This isn't right. You know, so they must have thought that, you know, it was it was OK. But I mean, they they definitely felt like self wasn't the person that they knew him to be because I mean, they knew him. So they hung out with him and, and were aware what his personality was like. But I guess I would say if, 
if you thought you knew somebody and then you find out that they're a murderer, I would think that you would think that their personality had changed at that point in time because you wouldn't necessarily know know the person who could do that. Right. Okay. Um, so they um, they then took him down and charged him with capital murder. And um, in an effort to prove that they were not mistreating him, they took uh, Michael's self to the hospital, had him stripped down naked, had photos of him taken. And um, then he was uh, interviewed again the next day by other jurisdictions like Harris County, Galveston Police Department, those other places that were trying to solve some of these other unsolved crimes. I'm sure Brazoria County was involved in that too because they had open homicides at that point. So they take him down there. I mean, they're having him down is that, there. Is that normal practice? I mean, that just sounds kind of weird to me. Why take him in for pictures if you don't plan on doing something or to validate that you won't do something like that? Is that normal practice? I, I don't think that it would be normal practice to take somebody who had been interrogated down to the hospital to have pictures taken of them. I mean, first of all, if you think of all the people that would be interrogated in different crimes, you know, you wouldn't have um, pictures taken of them. You know, every single person, you you wouldn't have the time. Um, so why in this case? And then I don't think that in this case you're having pictures taken of him because you're trying to find evidence. Because if you're talking about the timing, there would not be any evidence on him to show that he had committed this crime. You know, I mean, we're talking a year later at this point from when they went missing and um, or almost a year you know, so to think that they were doing it for that evidentiary valley, I think that they were doing it to show that no matter what he said, he wasn't mistreated, kind of like as a preemptive strike to show that he hadn't been mistreated by them. So I think they suspected that he was going to say that his confession was false because he was mistreated. I mean, so are they checking themselves as far as we're not going to do something. We have these pictures to prove it. Or... Yeah, we have these pictures to prove we didn't mistreat him to get a confession. <laughs> I can't even sometimes. Okay, so. So then a little time goes by and Self goes on trial for the capital murder. And you had asked me before why capital murder. Mm -hmm. And best I can tell is because in his confession, he does confess to sexually assaulting Sharon Shaw. And so she's a minor. Right. Yeah. And so she's and a child. Then, yeah. And so, so capital, capital murder, murder cases, on that. Yeah. yeah. Um, in his trial in 1973, Self did testify that he confessed that his confession was false. He said that Morris, Chief Morris, took out his gun, pulled five bullets out of the gun, dropped them on the table, and then pulled pointed the gun at his head and pulled the trigger and threatened to kill him if he didn't confess. Can I ask you something? What would you not confess to if somebody was pointing a gun at your head and playing Russian roulette with it? I mean, <laughs> to save your life, I mean... Right, I think to save your life at that point. Um, that's scary. You know, everybody says I wouldn't confess to something yeah. that I didn't okay. do. <laughs> Put a gun to my head and... Put a gun to my head and I'm and like falsely like click yeah. it, you know, several times over. I mean, right. that's scary. You know, that's really scary. I mean, I can't imagine how intense that situation would be. And oh, that's scary. That's super scary. Right. So and then um, Self's mother also testified. She stated that her son could not cope with any pressure, that he would do anything to make it stop. Well, I think in that case, you're surviving yeah I mean, I mean i think it's survival i don't think that you have to be somebody she does say that he had been under a psychiatrist um care in the past which we do know that he did go um seek psychiatrist care um when he was caught being a peeping tom but again you're looking at a situation where you know if if what he said happened they're then, trying to kill me yeah 
And and so they I don't need to tell them something because they're going to kill me. Yeah, I don't think it has to be the type of person who couldn't cope with pressure when you have a gun to your head. You know, um, there are some issues with the confession. So self claims that he met Rhonda at a theater and then they went to Sharon's house to pick her up. The family says, no way that didn't happen. They said there that if Sharon had been home that night, that there is no way that they would have let her go out the door with a 33-year-old man. Believe that. Um, then he changes his confession to say that he actually picked up uh, Sharon at the yacht club. The problem again with this is, from it's everybody's home. indication, it's at they're, home. They're in, yeah, they're in Galveston though. You know, um, and he says that he picked him up earlier in the evening. They were driving around the area, hanging out. Um, but all accounts have them in Galveston. I mean, there are many people who can put them in Galveston that night and not in Webster, you know, at home. Mm-hmm. And so there is some confusion with that. He also says that he threw the clothes out the door, out the window, I'm sorry, window while he was driving on Red Bluff Road. And um, and so that kind of contradicts where the keys were, the clothes were found altogether. And then one other thing that he doesn't account for in his confession is that there were a set of keys found uh, with the clothes when they found the clothes that were never identified as belonging to either girl. Really? And so the keys are believed to be possibly something that belonged to the perpetrator. They're never tied either to the girls or to self. And so that's another confusing point. But a few days later, deputies do take him in their car and they drive him around that Webster Clear Lake area. And he shows them where the girls' bodies were out there on Taylor Bayou and Taylor Lake. And so that they say is a way of corroborating his confession. It's like, this is his third confession to them. But I mean, by this time it's hit headlines, right? By this time, even from my research, I can find information in newspapers that give you enough information of where they are located that I think pretty much people in that area would have known. Plus the other problem with that is you are talking about somebody who was a volunteer fireman. So possibly would have been out there that day when their bodies are found helping with the search. And then, um, you're talking about somebody who was a friend of the former chief of police, Norman. And so you have to kind of question whether or not, you know, he got that information from, from there, you know, and then one person said everybody in town knew where the bodies were located. It wasn't a big city or a big town at that point. And so when you see that type of police activity out there and searching out there, everybody knows, you know, what has been found and and where they have been found, you know, so that to me, I don't think is, is a lot of collaboration, but that is what they use as to say that his um, confession was true. On So in, let me ask you, like, what do we know about the cops that have been involved with self and, you know, their criminal activity, I guess? Well, um, we know a lot about them, but... First, I think, you know, I think just for our viewers, we want people to be clear that he was convicted in 1973 and given a life sentence. Um, At that point in time, the death penalty had been abolished in the United States. And so life was the was the longest sentence that you could get. But it was um, a few years later through. it was a few years later that we find out that Morris and Deal, who were the investigating officers, Chief Morris and Tommy Deal, would have their own brush with the law. It was discovered that they were actually armed robbers of banks. So in September of 1975, Deal and Morris and another officer, Marshall, went to a small town to rob a bank at gunpoint. So Marshall 
and Morris, I mean, Deal and Marshall went into the bank and then Morris would be the getaway driver. Mm-hmm. So they go into the bank and it was actually a uh, local citizen who kind of noticed them walking into the bank and thought it was a little bit strange because the gentleman walking into the bank actually had plastic gloves on. Oh, And so, you know, in looking at that, he's like, why would you be going into the bank with plastic gloves on? And uh, so he went to his business, got his gun. And as they're trying to get out of the bank, he confronts them. And so their uh, reaction to that is that um, they um, grab this young lady who's there, 19 years old, and she's actually um, the bank, she's the receptionist, but she's also the bank uh, manager's daughter. And so they grab her, they drag her out with as a hostage. Well, Morris in the getaway car has kind of seen what's going on. And so he's gotten away and so they grab a they steal a car that's out there and they run off and the guy who was it's kind of like the okay corral it's like a crazy story i can't make this stuff up i know (laughs) so so the guy who's out there you know um watching this whole thing goes down actually managed to shoot two of the tires out you know um Good Texas shot, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he shoots two of the tires out, and they they like try to speed out of town, but the car is pretty much a little bit disabled. So they end up um, pulling over to try to steal another car, and the girl tries to get away, and it's a woman who's hanging up her laundry that actually like tries to intervene, and the girl runs into the house. Well, at that point in time, you didn't actually have 911. So she's like having to call an operator and tell an operator what's going on. And then the operator's having to call the cops and get the cops going. But by that time, it was like a little posse of local citizens who have armed themselves running after these guys. So they run, (laughs) so they run to like an (laughs) abandoned building, you know, and, um, and then the citizens are kind of coming down on them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and then this guy shows up with a badge and he's like, no, no, stand down. Let me handle this. I'm, you know, um, Texas Ranger. I'm here to take care of this. And they like, are like, we don't know you <laughs> get out of here. You don't belong here. <laughs> and so they, they managed to arrest, um, both deal and Marshall get them under arrest. And then it was just a couple days later that they actually tracked down Morris and arrest him and uh, and then all three men would serve time in jail. Um, they all did state that. But mind um, you, these are all newly appointed. Well, by this I'm time, sorry. by I'm this time, I think. That that, out there. Well, but by this time, it's 1975. So they had actually been appointed there in Webster for a while, and then um, I think Morris had actually been left for another robbing for another like three post. years. We're good, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, come to, come to find out, they actually had robbed four other banks. What they would do is target small towns. That was ridiculous. You know, and it yeah. was just for one alert citizen. who. But was, it does make you think, like, if they coerced self into doing or, like, pressured him to get the heat off of them. Like, you don't, we really don't know that, you know? Right. And there's a lot that, that comes out too, because, um, self actually does several different appeals and it isn't until, um, 1990s that, um, he, he had been in jail for 20 years at that point. He appeals again and he appeals this time under the grounds that his, uh, confession was coerced. And of course that, you know, these two are as dirty as they get out and, but how could they not agree? You know what I mean? Like, and through that appeal, you actually him. finally get a hearing because he had appealed a couple other times and wasn't granted a hearing, but he is finally granted a hearing. And through the hearing, so not only do other officers come forward and give testimony to say, hey, you know, they had seen things going on like this. They had actually seen Morris interrogate other prisoners by taking the bullets out of his gun, laying them on the table, and then pretending that one bullet was in the chamber still That's and sick. firing off around. That's I guess sick. I guess he would pocket a bullet so that he didn't unluckily I mean, shoot Gretchen, one of these prisoners. Can you imagine ever being in that situation? I can't. I can't. I can't. I, I, 
you know, and so it's, and then, you know, they, they had definitely witnessed other incidents where these guys were, were pretty, you know, Luis Morris was pretty abusive to these inmates. Um, and then the other things that, um, but when that happens, let's be clear though, because we're talking about that. When that happens, when police officers are that abusive to inmates, false confessions happen and the real victims and their families don't get the answers that they think they're getting because it's under false pretenses, right? You know, it's under life or death for that person. And they're like, I'm a good person. I think I'm a good person, but they're making me feel that I'm not a good person. And maybe I did this. And, you know, I mean, there's no justice with that kind of, behavior no there's no justice with you that know kind of so behavior. i don't want to like get too far away from when we're talking about that kind of stuff because right because, because like the families of the victims <laughs> don't even know if they can believe it you know what i'm saying like believe that that person is truly guilty right and that's not fair no you know to to have this go on and actually, I guess I have to say this too. You have to say, even if Michael Self was the person who did this, to have this type of question about his, the validity of his confession is really unacceptable. It is. You know, it's just, it's absolutely unacceptable. And then, and, and, and it's overturned. Shut up. It's overturned well his case is overturned by a texas judge who yeah. says it's the confession first. was false mm -hmm. the confession was overturned and that they needed to let self out of jail but, but where does that leave that victim's family who thought he did it all that time well honestly i have to tell you they probably still felt that self did mm -hmm. it because what happened was so the confession is overturned by a texas judge but the united states supreme court overturns the texas judge's right. decision and so what happens is in 1992 the u.s supreme court comes back and says just because you have a coerced false confession or just because you have a coerced confession doesn't mean that they get a new trial and we should throw out the whole case but it should in my opinion i would absolutely agree with you if you will step over the line to get something at that level then no, no, it does. To me, it does mean that mm -hmm. you cannot commit a crime in order to get a conviction. Right. You can't. That's not the way that our justice system, those are not the beliefs that our justice system are found on. And but Michael Self was not released from prison and he died in prison in 2000. But for the family, I don't know if they continue to believe that you know, this was the man who killed their daughters or not. I can tell you there is one other thing that does happen in this case, which is in 1990, a man named Patrick Hefner walked into the Taylor Lake police station and stated that something was bothering him. He wanted to confess to the killing of the girls. He admitted to the fact that law enforcement, that he was involved and he said that he had tied both girls up with black cord. He made other references to a set of keys being left behind. And these were things that at the time law enforcement said were not released to the public. Right. And they thought that his confession was true. But they could not pursue that because somebody else was serving time. Now, later, the court examination of that confession said that they found it to be unrealistic. Why? I think that they believed that some of this stuff had possibly been released. You know, and I, yeah, I don't know. never said anything about. OK, because in our reports that we can get from the newspapers, it says Black Twine. Right. This guy walks in to Taylor Lake Police Station, which is now Nassau Bay because they do have their own police, and says black cord. Right. Okay, that's pretty specific. It is pretty specific. And, you know, my only 
issue with that is in the keys, the keys. And in none of the, in none of the articles that I found before 1980 and actually before, um, selfs, uh, before selfs appeal, do I find any mention of the keys? Um, that is something that I don't find until actually self appeals. The problem is though, I have seen a video that was shot at the crime scene that was on another show. And I've seen that video where they do show you them pulling out what looks to be cord and does look to be black. Now, I don't know when that video was released. Obviously it's released now because this is a closed case. And so Freedom of Information Act, people have been able to get that video. You can find that on YouTube. I don't believe that it would have been released in 1980, but again, they did have somebody in prison for this. So people could have possibly seen that type of evidence. You know, I think he deserved to be looked at, but I don't know that we can, say that self didn't commit these crimes and this guy did commit these crimes. I think we do have to ask ourselves, why would somebody admit to that? And what the court said is they felt like he wanted to be part of something. But I think that we certainly have enough here to say it's hard to keep. I mean, you have to bring it up. You have to, yeah, bring, it you have to bring it up. You have, you to, have to bring it up. You have to and I mean, here's it. the thing, like, why is it? Why is it not looked at? to the extent that we can find right any resources saying we looked into it you know why is it okay to say like oh he's a crackpot or he's this or he's that like i mean why not look into it at the very least oh because you already have somebody serving that time so you can't do that mm -hmm. because you don't want to admit your faults i'm not okay with that and you know i'm not okay well and the sad thing about this is that self actually dies in prison in 2000 so he would actually not because he's now passed he would not qualify with, for what we now have which is that these convictions qualify for DNA testing on any evidence right. that's out there so those clothes that were out there the keys the keys would be iffy but the clothes Okay, and I know this is totally random and off script or whatever, but why can't they be tested anyway? They could be tested if they are available, but the problem is with DNA, with an offender has to ask for DNA mm. testing in their case when they're serving these types of sentences, and because he is dead, he cannot ask for that. So because he's dead, like, we can never get that retested? Like, you could, nobody could ever retest that? My guess is that that evidence is probably now destroyed. Wow. That's, that's. Wow. It would have to be Webster coming forward and saying, I mean, why we did they not destroy, destroy this. They don't have space to. Well, because once self dies in prison, there is no ability for self to appeal any more conviction. So that evidence would not have to be kept anymore. Okay. Yeah, okay, I'm blown. My mind is blown right now, guys. So for, please forgive me. Did not know that. You know, and that that's just that's where we're at. I mean, that's I you also know, feel like you, that is totally ridiculous if I have to go say that. I do. I don't think that's okay. I think if you have a case and there's evidence, why destroy it ever? Well, I think that it gets to a point of like how how can we possibly keep all the evidence in every single case that's out there. Well, if it was my daughter, I don't think I would ever want anything destroyed. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I just don't think I'd be okay with that. If they want to destroy it, then they can give it to me. Right. But you, <laughs> I know I'm the, honey, if, like, the law or anything. Right. But, but if you were the parents who I believe both of these uh, sets of parents have actually passed, but if you were the parents and you did go in and get the, that evidence and say, I want to keep that evidence. They'd have to give it to me, right? Mm, not no. necessarily. Okay. Um, you know, that that's questionable. But even if you wanted to take that evidence, the chain of custody would be broken then at that point in time for you to then take that evidence. It's already and have that broken! <laughs> Oh, but, it's, like, but it's not broken because if okay. it's, well yeah but I mean if it still exists they can't turn it over they, 
law enforcement can't simply turn it over to just like somebody and somebody say, okay, I'm going to walk down to the DNA lab and I'm going to get DNA testing. And well, that's I don't think it's that simple. I don't really actually think it's that simple, but, but I want but how possession of it. Right. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't know that they hadn't like tampered with it in some way. Well, I'm sure it's already tampered with, with, I just can't because I don't think I'd be okay with it. I, I don't. Like, even if it was tampered with, I'd still want it. Right. I still would want it. And even if they had to retest it and it was tampered with and they couldn't use it in the court of law, I'd want it. I just want to know. Like, you could still test it and never be able to go to court with it. Well, right. I mean, you know what you I'm know, saying? But like, I could literally, like, test it and not go to court with it. And that's okay too. But you're not going to be able to. I think it. You know. I think I see your point. And I see your passion. You understand? Like I'm right, very, I, like I I'm under, over it. Like I'm right. Like, and I okay. understand your passion for it. And I think it's it's important. But I think you know the important thing is here. You know, just by testing the DNA, you you you're not you can't just test DNA and then have it compared to like criminals and stuff like that. It's not something that that everyday citizens can do. So unfortunately. If there is DNA and if it is still available, it would be the Webster Police Department who would have to step forward and say, because we have some questions about this case, we want to go ahead and have this evidence tested and see if there is anything there. Now, if it still is available, I don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility. I always think that there's... You know, just because there is this that goes on with a conviction doesn't mean that law enforcement is unwilling to look at the link between this case and the other cases that we have talked about earlier and maybe possibly the other cases that we're going to be talking about in the future. So I think what we're looking for is the possibility that there's a law enforcement officer out there or somebody out there who cares enough about what happened here to look at this case in conjunction with these other cases and to see if there's a possibility of some DNA evidence that could be tested and put an answer to this. Not only an answer for Rhonda Johnson's family and Sharon Shaw's family, but also an answer for Self's family. Michael Self, if he committed this crime, then people should know that. If he didn't commit this crime, then unfortunately he's another victim in this terrible cycle. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, yeah, I think then he's another victim here. And then we need and to- And I actually do believe his mother spoke on his behalf and knew it. If, if a mother can speak on the behalf of her son and say he would do that just to please anybody, there are personality types out there that would do stuff like that. We've discussed on a personal level, level who I know who would do that. You right. know, I mean, and that's sad. It is. It is very sad. And, and I think nowadays we also know that false confessions happen and how they happen. Obviously, this is an extreme example of how a false confession can happen. But I think there are other examples of how false confessions happen. You know, so I think there are people out there who may take a look at this and, you know, who are taking a look at this. And hopefully we will have some answers. Maybe there is DNA out there or the possibility of DNA out there. We are applying for a um, open records request. And hopefully in that open records request, we'll have some answers there. Yeah. But I think we're going to take a little break here and we'll be right back with you. What, what, I just need to touch on one thing before oh, we yeah, take a yeah. break. I'm sorry. You know, false confessions are something that I've learned about a lot in the last six months, eight months maybe, um, that was eye-opening to me because I didn't know what that was. You hear about it, but I didn't know what that was. When you really go into the details of how that happens, you can see how that applies here. So Absolutely. I would suggest like all our listeners to kind of maybe do some research on what a false confession is. Right. You know? Yeah. So. I, I think there's a lot out there too, but this, this to me is an extreme example of, of how that can possibly yeah. happen. But I think there are some less extreme. And this is like way early on before 
Yeah, before we, yeah, a lot of right now we, that, yeah. that we've seen. Yeah. So, so thanks, and we will be right back with you. All right, guys, and I think on that note, we're going to end for the day. I know it was a lot of info, and thanks for sticking with us. In next week's episode, we are going to talk about Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson's stories. So stay tuned, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous or email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And as always, we look forward to hearing from you. I'm signing out. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Thank you so much. You guys have a great night. And it's our studio in Texas City.